With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're going to do the same thing today that we did on the first episode last week. With so many games being played in Serie A, Champions League, and Europa League, There is a ton to cover, so we're going to defer the new segment to the second episode of the week. Today we'll review Napoli's derby win in part 1. In part 2, we'll recap all the other action from the round. And in part 3, we'll preview Napoli's Europa League match on Thursday against Real Sociedad. So let's start with the win over Benevento. Several sides involved in the title race. Daniele Doveri gets us up and running at the Vigorito. It's Benevento against Napoli. Caprari releasing Lapadula. Nice cutback. It was Roberto Insigne closing in. Still Lapadula. Roberto Insigne has his goal against Napoli. What a story this is. Unbridled joy. The younger brother, so often in the shadows of Lorenzo, has his day, has his name up in lights. Fabian Ruiz. Mertens leaves it for Insigne. And there goes the half-time whistle. Benevento enjoying a shock lead against their more glamorous neighbours, Napoli. This match, Politano, Lorenzo Insigne. Once again, Monty Pop stands up and is counted. Taken quickly again by Napoli, Politano. Lorenzo Insigne on his unfavoured left. It's wonderful. What an equaliser that is. Previously denied by the offside flag. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with that from Insigne. 
Camille Glick's headed it straight to Petania. And now Politano joining in. Matteo Politano. Petania's there. And Napoli have turned things around. Andrea Petania off the bench to get his first goal in Azzurri Colors. Lovely combination between the two substitutes. We've seen that Maggio is a threat in the air. Glick is good too with his head. Monty Poe is forward. Sal with the free kick. And Meret did well. Napoli hang on. A comeback victory. It wasn't easy. There were some scares along the way. Benevento took a shock lead through a former Napoli player, Roberto Insigne, with his first goal in the Italian top flight. But then his older brother, Lorenzo, equalised with a stunning effort on the hour mark. And then Pitania came off the bench seven minutes later to bag the winner. The Insigne brothers swap shirts. A proud day for their family. So as you heard, Napoli came from behind to win 2-1 with goals from the Insigne brothers and from Andrea Petagna. There were so many subplots in this match, but before we get into that, let's start with the starting lineups. Pipo Inzaghi went with essentially the same starting 11 that we were expecting, lined up in a 4-3-3. Lorenzo Montipo started in goal. Luca Caldirola and Camille Glick played at centre-back. You might have noticed that Glick quickly greeted Bakayoko on the Napoli corner kick early in the first half. That's because they played two seasons together at Monaco and Ligue 1, first in the 2016-2017 campaign, and then last season when Bakayoko returned after short stints at Milan and Chelsea. Dom Fulon played at left back and Gaetano Letizia played at right back. Pasquale Schettarella played center mid with Brian Dabo on his left and Artur Ionita on his right. Up top, the only player we got wrong in our predicted starting 11 was Roberto Insigne, who started in place of Iago Falque. Gianluca Caprari started on the left wing, and Gianluca Lapadula started at striker. Credit to Matt Lenev on Twitter for pointing out that Inzaghi had three Napolitans in his starting 11, in Schettarella, Letizia, and Insigne. For Napoli, our predicted starting 11 was pretty far off, actually. We had Gattuso reverting back to the 4-3-3, but he stuck with the 4-2-3-1. He started Alex Meret in goal for the second consecutive match, which is very rare these days. We were right that Mario Rui would start at left wing, but we were expecting Kisai to start on the right. Instead, Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again. Kaladu Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas started at center back. We had Maksimovic starting over Koulibaly. In the midfield, Fabian Ruiz started in the double pivot with Tiemui Bakayoko. We were expecting the three-man midfield with Diego Demme. But in the 4-2-3-1, Dries Mertens started in the 10 spot instead. Lorenzo Insigne returned to play on the left wing, and Chucky Lozano moved over to the right wing, which we did predict, and Victor Osman started up top, whereas we were expecting Andrea Petania to start. So that's where I want to start, because I was very surprised with this starting 11. Gattuso basically rolled out our best starting 11 against a newly promoted club. Now, I can appreciate why he did that, as like I said in our preview, Benevento are a sneaky team that have the potential to steal points from bigger clubs. Perhaps the decision was partially out of respect for his former Milan and World Cup winning Azzurri teammate, Pipo Inzaghi, but I doubt Gattuso would let that influence his decision making. That said, the selection did make me scratch my head at the team that we started against Alkmaar in the Europa League. Koulibaly, Di Lorenzo, Fabian, Mertens, Lozano, and Osimhen have all now played three matches in nine days. I doubt they would have if they were not in quarantine during the international break, but I'd be very worried about injuries if we rolled out our best 11 against Real Sociedad on Thursday, and we're going to talk more about that in part three. 
I'm not terribly concerned about Koulibaly as we have three center backs, four if you include Rahmani, that we can rotate between. Likewise, I'm not too concerned about Di Lorenzo because with Mario Rui returning, we have three fullbacks, or four if you include Kevin Malqui, that we can rotate between there. And Gattuso trusts Kisai on both sides, even though he seems to do better on the left. A quick comment on Mario Rui, as I saw a lot of people questioning why we haven't seen him in so long. My thoughts are that for the first two matches, he didn't play because he was recovering from a knock that he picked up in training. Then Insigne got hurt in the Genoa match, and I've mentioned how well Rui and Insigne play together on the left side. It seems to me that when Insigne is not playing, Gattuso prefers LC Kusai on the left. That could be because Insigne is a better defender than Lozano is. I'd submit that Husai is a better defender than Rui, which is certainly debatable, so when Lozano plays, it's better to go with a safer option at left back, which is LC Husai. I think Mario Rui is a more modern fullback in that he contributes more on the offensive end than Husai does, but Napoli play more direct when Lozano is on the left because of his pace and because he does not have the playmaking abilities that Insigne does, so Rui's ability to support the attack isn't as important when Lozano is on. I'm also not terribly concerned about Lozano playing three straight with Insigne back in the lineup as we can rotate between Insigne, Politano, and Lozano. Hopefully Gattuso rotates more on the wing as I thought Insigne played way too much after the restart. I know Elmes can play on the wing but it's going to be hard for him to get time with three other wingers playing at such a high level. The three players I am concerned about are Fabian, Mertens, and Osimhen, and none of them played particularly well in this match. Hopefully we can get Zielinski and Elmas into the squad against Real Sociedad and maybe give each of them a half or at least let one of them start and then bring Fabian in off the bench. Dries has now had two weak performances in a row. That's not entirely on him. I think just about everybody played poorly against Alkmaar and he should not have started this match against Benevento. He may be in top shape but he's still 33 years old. And Osman didn't necessarily have a bad game but like against Alkmaar he didn't have the same impact on the match that he had against Parma, Genoa, and Atalanta, so I'll be very curious to see who plays against Sociedad, but like I said, we'll talk more about that in part 3. Next, I want to talk about the Insigne brothers. They grew up in Frata Maggiore, which is about 15 kilometers north of Napoli, that's about a 15 minute drive. Roberto and Lorenzo have two more brothers, Marco and Antonio. Antonio, who plays in the 6th division of Italian football, joked before the match that he's the best of the lot because his brothers learned from him. Both Roberto and Lorenzo came through Napoli's Primavera squad and they were teammates in the 2016-17 campaign but Roberto never made a full appearance for the senior team. We actually didn't have Roberto in our predicted starting 11 as Iago Falque seemed to have taken over as the starting right winger since joining Benevento but we recorded our preview prior to the pre-match conference where Inzaghi did confirm that Falque was not fit to play. Surprisingly, it was Roberto Insigne that opened the scoring in the match. Everyone blamed Costas Manolas for the goal, but to me, it's as much on Lozano as it is on Manolas. The play starts with Di Lorenzo playing a give and go with Lozano on the right side, but the return pass is too heavy, so Di Lorenzo is caught out of position on the counter. Credit to Gianluca Caprari for playing the ball to Lapadula on the wing with the outside of his right boot, no less. Now, Lapadula did get behind Manolas, and Manolas clears the ball straight back to Lapadula. But Mario Rui, who was covering Insigne, peeled off to pick up the run at the back post, which was probably the wrong decision. You can't give up a free shot from that range to cover the run. Manolas was down from the clearance, so someone had to step up on the shot, and that could have only been Mario Rui. That was Roberto Insigne's first goal in Serie A, and it was Benevento's first goal 
scored against Napoli after four previous meetings. It was Lorenzo who saved the ball for his brother. Roberto was asked about the goal by the zone during the break, and he responded that he was very happy, but that he was very sorry his first Serie A goal was against his brother. Lorenzo Insigne was not to be outdone. He was my man of the match, which says a lot considering that this was his first start after missing a month with a thigh injury. He nearly equalized in the 41st minute with a classic Insigne move, cutting in from their left side and bending his shot toward the far post, but Lorenzo Montipo made an excellent save to keep it out. Montipo actually made a few big saves in this match. Then Lorenzo thought he equalized just after the restart, but his goal was ruled off for offside. Montipo fouled Lorenzo again in the 60th minute, but his goal did come on the ensuing corner kick with a stunning left-footed strike that hit the bar and bounced inside the goal. After the match, Lorenzo was asked what he said to his brother after he scored, and he said he told Roberto that he has the better left foot, which is actually really funny when you consider that Roberto is left-footed and Lorenzo is not. I'll close the review with a few general comments about the match. Napoli dominated possession in the opening quarter, but we were very sloppy, specifically with our passing, both in making passes and in receiving them. We also had a number of corner kicks. Thankfully, Insigne scored on one because we made very little of the others. I don't know why we're so determined to play them short. I get that you improve the angle of the cross, but half the time we don't even get the cross in. With so many big men in the squad now, I'd much rather play the corner directly into the box and see what happens. We nearly scored like that late in the first half when Manolas headed the ball into the bar. We hit the woodwork a few times in this match. That corner kick was one after Lozano's cross deflected off the side of the upright, and late in the match, Politano had a shot go off the corner of the goal. Once again, Gattuso found a way to motivate his team at the break. We started the half looking very determined. I talked about the players who have played three matches in nine days. Clearly, Gattuso recognized that there were some tired legs out there as he replaced Mertens and Lozano with Patania and Politano in the 58th minute, which is a little bit early than Gattuso typically makes his changes. Both were instrumental in securing the three points. Patania scored his first in a Napoli jersey, and Politano made an excellent run to set up the goal. Gattuso showed his tactical acumen once again, switching to the 4-4-2 after making those changes. That's becoming a trend with Patania and Osimhen being on together. We saw Gattuso do the same thing, bringing Patania on in the Parma match. Whenever we have a good match like this, we always seem to lose a player too, unfortunately. We lost Insigne in the match to Genoa, and in this one, Bakayoko walked off the pitch very gingerly. Hopefully, it's not that serious because he's proving to be a great fit for this team and you can see why Gattuso wanted him. Christian Maggio made his first appearance against the club that he spent 10 seasons with, and nearly set up a goal late in the match, but Mario Rui cleared his header off the near post. Napoli had a few scares late in the match. First in the 87th minute, we got caught on the counterattack, but Mario Rui made a huge clearance. Then, in the 7th minute of added time, Alex Meret made a nice save on a direct free kick by Marco Sao from a tight angle. Gattuso must have been concerned seeing Lorenzo Motipo get forward for that play. The last time Benevento were up in Serie A, they lost their first 14 matches before drawing Gattuso's Milan in the final minute on a goal from keeper Alberto Brignoli. In fact, after the match, Gattuso said that that match had only happened two and a half years ago, but it's taken 20 years from his life. Finally, after the match, Napoli's official Twitter account tweeted that we have four wins in four matches obviously ignoring the loss at the table to Juventus. Gattuso felt the same way. After the match, he said, My team doesn't have 11 points in 5 matches. We have 12 points in 4 matches. So that's our review of Napoli's win over Benevento. In part 2, we'll recap the rest of the action 
from match day five. Match Day 5 started on Friday in foggy Reggio Emilia, where Sassuolo were hosting Torino. When I say foggy, I mean on TV, you could hardly see the players on the opposite side of the pitch and you definitely could not see the spectators who were sitting on that side. It was so foggy that the goal line technology was also not available. This match finished 3-3, Carolinetti, Andrea Bellotti and Sasha Lukic scored for Torino, while Filip Juricic, Vlad Ciricis and Francesco Caputo scored for Sassuolo. This was Torino's first point of the season, but they'll be disappointed with the result. They led by a score of 3 goals to 1 with only 6 minutes to play, but just like in the 4th round against Bologna, Sassuolo made a dramatic late comeback. Despite the high score, Sassuolo keeper Andrea Consigli was probably the man of the match. He stopped Simone Verdi 1-on-1 less than 10 minutes into the match. Verdi tried to chip Consigli and somehow he managed to kick the ball out of midair as he was falling to the ground. In the 18th minute, he made himself big again to stop Suelihe Mietes shot from close range. And in the 54th minute, he made a great reaction save on Bellotti's header from the corner kick. Then a few minutes later, he made yet another save on Simone Verdi, one-on-one, and once again, he made himself big. Finally, on the ensuing corner kick, Consigli stopped another Bellotti header. But Consigli was beat three times. Linetti scored Torino's first goal of the season that was not scored by Bellotti. That was the only goal scored in the first 70 minutes of the match. Then five goals were scored in the final 20. Bellotti scored his fifth goal in four matches. He was excellent once again. This goal came out of nowhere. Lianco played a long ball from inside his own half toward Bellotti in the Sassuolo box. Somehow Bellotti controlled the ball with his head that was coming over the top before completely outmuscling Vlad Ciriches before finishing Pasconcili. Only moments later, Bellotti assisted on Torino's third, laying off for Sasha Lukic, who placed his shot neatly inside the far post. Filip Juricic scored Sassuolo's first with a clever little backheel from close range. Juricic is quickly becoming more and more important to the Sassuolo side. He was central to everything positive that Sassuolo did in this match. Vlad Ciricic made up for his error on Belotti's goal by scoring an absolute golazzo. He blasted a shot from well outside the box that was always rising into the top corner. This goal will definitely be a candidate for goal of the year. And according to the broadcast, the last time that he scored a goal was in December 2016 when he was a Napoli player and ironically that goal was also scored against Torino. Only moments later, Domenico Berardi picked out Chicho Caputo in the box and his header found the back of the goal after a bit of luck as the header bounced off Bremer and in. This was a wild second half, there was end-to-end action, and those final four goals were scored in a span of eight minutes. Sassuolo is a ton of fun to watch. Like Atalanta, when a team gets forward as much as they do, they are going to concede opportunities and goals. But that's two games in a row they've gone down 3-1 to one and had to claw their way back, which is not what you want to be doing if you're hoping to qualify for the Europa League. Speaking of Atalanta, they played Sampdoria in the first of three matches on Saturday. Sampdoria pulled off another upset, winning 3-1 just a week after defeating Lazio 3-0. Fabio Quagliarella, Morten Thorsby, and Jakub Janko scored for Sampdoria, while Duvan Zapata scored the long goal for Atalanta from the penalty spot. 
Zapata and Luis Muriel both started on the bench having played in the Champions League early in the week and with another round of Champions League coming up this week. Atalanta controlled the play for the majority of the match, but it seemed whenever Sampdoria got a chance they took it. It's not often that Atalanta are not the more clinical side in a match. Against Lazio, Tommaso Augello had the standout performance. In this match, it was Mikel Damsgaard who stood out. He made a really nice pass to pick out Quagliarella's run on the first goal, and he was also involved in the build-up on the second goal. Speaking of Quagliarella, he continues to produce and in style too. He used a step over to create space on his supposedly weaker left foot before blasting his shot into the roof of the goal at the near post. Quagliarella had a chance for a second from the penalty spot. The way the penalty was awarded was a bit odd. Gaston Ramirez went to ground moments before the cross hit the outstretched arm of Johan Mojica. Because of the stoppage, the VAR had time to review the play and ultimately awarded the penalty. I'll assume that VAR would have still awarded the penalty regardless of whether Ramirez was down. Qualirella hit the penalty with power but caught too much of the goal and Sportiello made the save. Watching this live, I thought that might have been a play that turned the match around, but in the end it did not. Gasparini made three changes at the break in an attempt to get back into the match and it appeared to be working. Atalanta were all over Sampdoria at the start of the second half, but it was Sampdoria that scored the second goal of the match. This was a really well worked goal from the Blue Cercati. The cross from Janko had just enough weight on it to allow Thorsby to sneak behind De Pauli who once again had a rough outing. Things went from bad to worse for Atalanta, Martin Darun had to be removed in the 63rd minute after appearing to injure his groin. Atalanta did make the match interesting with a goal from the penalty spot in the 80th minute. The penalty was awarded after a VAR review of a foul on Zapata in the box, but there did not appear to be a foul there. Plays like this really make me wish referees were required to explain why they made the decision they did. Our good friend Benjamin, who you can find on Twitter, at Caserta Campagna, posted a video on Twitter not too long ago of the Australian A-League where the refs are mic'd up so you can hear the explanations they give to players, which is brilliant. It didn't matter in the end, though Sampdoria secured the victory with a late goal from Janko, so in the span of two matches, last season's 16th place team has defeated last season's 3rd and 4th place teams. Last season's runners-up, Inter defeated Genoa 2-0 in the second match of the day. Ashraf Hakimi returned to the squad after testing negative for COVID, but he was not in the starting 11. Christian Eriksen was in the starting 11 and showed everyone why he typically is not. His distribution wasn't bad, but Eriksen just has this demeanor about him that makes it look like he's not trying or that he doesn't care. Other than a couple of nice blocks by Mattia Bani, one on Arturo Vidal and the other on Danilo D'Ambrosio, not much happened in the first half. For a moment it looked like Genoa were going to pull off another draw without actually trying to score, but Conte brought in Hakimi and Nicolo Barella early in the second half and both made an impact. It wasn't long before who else Romelu Lukaku scored yet again. He already has 7 goals in 6 appearances in all competitions this season. Danilo D'Ambrosio added a second to give Inter what turned out to be a comfortable win in an otherwise uneventful match. Lazio and Bologna played the final match on Saturday. Lazio won 2-1 on goals from Luis Alberto and Ciro Immobile, while Bologna's lone goal came from Lorenzo del Silvestri. Simone Inzaghi rested Sergei Milinkovic-Savic in the hope of having him fit to play on Wednesday in the Champions League. Inzaghi also started Pepe Reina in goal. Reina was bailed out by the VAR early in the match. Matthias Vanberg beat Reina from well outside the box, but VAR reviewed the play and decided that there was a foul on Lucas Leva before the goal was scored, so the goal was ruled out. Reina did make an important save on Musa Barrow late in the match though, and again in the final minute on Emmanuel Vignato. This wasn't Lazio's best performance, but they did what they needed to do to get the 3 points, but I think this match could have easily gone the other way. 
Not to take anything away from the run or the finish, but Luis Alberto benefited from a costly Danilo error, and Ricardo Orsolini smashed his free kick off the bar in the second half. That said, I think we saw some growth from Simone Inzaghi here as a manager. You could argue that Lazio's downfall last season was his unwillingness to rotate. That wasn't an issue before the lockdown when Lazio only played once a week, but quickly became a problem with the condensed schedule after the restart. Most people attributed Lazio's decline to a lack of squad depth, and rightfully so, but Inzaghi did have options he simply chose not to use. In this match, Inzaghi showed that he is now willing to rotate. He started rain over Strakosha, like we said. Wesley Holt started over Luis Felipe, though that was necessitated by yet another Luis Felipe injury. Jean-Daniel Akpa Akpro started over Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. To me, that change was the most productive. Milinkovic-Savic picked up a minor knock against Borussia Dortmund, so he needed the extra match off to play in the Champions League. And at the same time, it gave Akpa Akpro some valuable playing time, and once again, he looked very good. Finally, Chiro Immobile scored his second in Serie A and his third in all competitions. With that goal, he surpassed Beppe Signori as the second highest goal scorer in Lazio history, and he is now only 21 goals behind top scorer Silvio Piola. Sunday's action started with a wild back-and-forth match between Crotone and Cagliari. In the end, Cagliari won 4-2. Most of the action happened in the second part of the first half. Junior Masias opened the scoring in the 21st minute. Greek fullback Charlampos Likogiannis equalized four minutes later with a gorgeous left-footed free kick over the wall and into the top corner. Giovanni Simeone continued his hot start. He scored his fourth of the season in the 35th minute after two amazing passes, first from Diego Godin out of his own end and then from João Pedro to send Simeone through. Salvatore Molina equalized for Crotone in the 43rd minute with a lovely volley from the top of the box. He caught a lot of the goal, but the shot had so much pace on it that it still beat Alessio Cranio. Just when you thought this was the final goal of the half, Ricardo Sotil put Caliari back on top with a header to the bottom corner. João Pedro put the match away in the 84th minute. He was initially called offside, but the VAR confirmed that Andrea Rispoli played him on. Crotone will be very disappointed with this result. Simi had plenty of opportunities, but he was unable to score. And for some reason, with only a one-goal lead, Caliari took their foot off the gas in the second half and allowed Crotone to come at them. Even after Luca Cigarini picked up a second yellow, Crotone still had the better opportunities in the half. Cranio made a big save on Simi only minutes before that João Pedro goal. I've said this before, but Crotone cannot expect to survive conceding so many goals. They've allowed four goals in three of their five matches. Ironically, their two best performances came against top clubs. The first was a 2-0 loss to Milan, and the second a 1-1 draw to Juve, which is the only point they've collected so far. Fiorentina beat Udinese 3-2 on a brace by Gaetano Castrovilli and a header from Nikola Milankovic. Stefano Okaka scored a brace for Udinese. Fiorentina shot out of the gate scoring twice in just over 20 minutes. Castrovilli scored the first and assisted on the second. On both goals, Udinese's defense was very disorganized, very static, and struggled with horizontal passes in their own area. It looked like this might end up being a blowout, but Udinese settled down after that. Bartolome Dragowski made an excellent save on Kevin Lasagna in the 37th minute. Lasagna continues to struggle to find the back of the goal despite having plenty of opportunities, but he is working hard and when you do that, the goals eventually come. On this play, he used his pace to run around Martin Caceres, but Dragowski made himself big and kept the ball out. Not only did Fiorentina concede a big opportunity, they also lost a key player due to injury. Captain German Petzella was forced to leave the match with an ankle injury. Udinese turned up the pressure after that and managed to pull one back before the break. Arslan made a key pass to spring Rodrigo de Paul on the wing, 
who cut it back for Stefano Okaka to head in. Amrabat, Caceres, and Castrovilli all stepped up on Arslan, and no one followed the Paul's run. If you give him that much time and space, he will make you pay. Okaka won't score an easier goal. The second half started much like the first with Castrovilli scoring yet again, so he finished the match with two goals and an assist. On this goal, he made a little hesitation at the top of the box to pull Sebastian De Mayo out of position and to open up the shot, and the finish curled into the top corner was exquisite. The final half hour was all Udinese, Dragovski was called upon time and time again and he answered the call, including an unbelievable reaction save on Okaka from close range. I really enjoyed the midfield battle between arguably the best midfielder in the league in Rodrigo De Paul and one of last season's best holding midfielders in Sofian Amrabat. I thought this was Amrabat's best performance for Fiorentina so far, he was really good, especially in the second half. Finally, after scoring 0 goals in 3 matches to start the campaign, Udinese have now scored 5 goals in their last 2 matches. They scored 3 in the win over Parma and 2 here in this match. Speaking of Parma, they played Spezia to a 2-2 draw. Julian Shabbat and Kevin Agudello scored for Spezia only 3 minutes apart in the middle of the first half. Ricardo Galliolo and Yurai Kuchka scored for Parma. Both sides were missing players due to COVID, which is something we should all get used to hearing because the numbers are only rising in Italy and a lot of places in the world for that matter. Parma did get Andreas Cornelius back though. This was a tough match to watch if I'm being honest. At times it felt like I was watching a Serie B match, which, if these two teams keep playing the way they are, could well be a Serie B match next season. Neither team could maintain possession for any prolonged period of time. There were a lot of long balls and a lot of wayward passes. Parma struggled with Spezia's press in the first half, but turned it up in the second half, especially in the final half hour. Jan Caramo looked very dangerous off the bench. The way Gervinho has played the last few matches, I think you can make a case for Caramo to be the starting left winger. He came close on a few occasions. Luigi Seppa made a big save 1v1 with Caramo in the 80th minute, and then a few minutes later, Salva Ferrer made a great sliding block on Caramo in the box as well. Willen Cyprian had a free kick from a dangerous area go over the bar, and Yurai Kuchka had an opportunity from point-blank range go wide of the goal. Spezia didn't get forward too often, but when they did, they had excellent opportunities, they just couldn't convert any in the second half. Both Nahuel Estevez and Daniele Verde had attempts hit the upright and stay out. Spezia came within mere minutes of their first ever Serie A win, but in added time, Cornelius was fouled in the box. Kuchka converted the penalty to draw level at 2, which is how this match ended. This was yet another disappointing result for Parma, who have only 4 points through 5 matches now. There's a lot of talk about Marco Giampaolo and Beppe Iacchini being at risk of losing their jobs. I think we may need to add Fabio Liberani to that list. I was surprised that Parma sacked Roberto De Versa after last season, and it's looking like they may have made the wrong decision. I know Parma lost their best player in Dejan Kulusevski, but I don't think they should have taken such a steep drop-off from losing one player. Juventus closed the action on Sunday with a 1-1 draw against Hellas Verona. IFTV tweeted the final result with the headline, Verona hold Andrea Pirlo's Juventus to a 1-1 draw. Our friend Rick Hoff quite rightly corrected that headline, saying Juve hold Ivan Juric's Verona to a 1-1 draw. Verona more than held their own in this match. Both sides had goals overturned after VAR reviews of very close offsides. We spoke about this last episode, but at least it happened both ways. Unfortunately, Verona's goal would have been Abrima Colley's first. For Juventus, Alvaro Morata had his goal streak come to an end. That's the second time it's happened to him in as many matches in Serie A. The same thing happened to him against Crotone. 
Andrea Favilli scored the lone goal for Verona. He replaced Nikola Kalinic in the 55th minute, scored in the 60th minute, and had to come out in the 62nd minute after appearing to pull a muscle in his leg. Pirlo responded by bringing in Dejan Kulusevski, who was easily Juve's best player on the field after coming on. He scored the equalizer in the 78th minute. This is the type of match we're used to seeing Ronaldo or Dybala score that late winner when Juve needed the most, but Ronaldo was out, and Dybala really didn't do much until later in the match. Even on what I think is safe to call an off day for Dybala, he still managed to hit the bar and came very close on a few occasions. Things got a little heated in added time. Klusevsky had a few choice words for Davide Faraoni for taking too long to take a throw-in. After Faraoni took the throw-in, he ran towards Klusevsky and gave him a little bump in the back. And then when Klusevsky turned around, Faraoni pulled his ear, which of course drew a reaction from the young Swede, and a bit of a scrum ensued. So Juventus are off to a shaky start to the season. After a really impressive win over Sampdoria to open the season, they've managed only one win and three draws, and that win, of course, was not on the field. Finally, the match of the round was played on Monday between Milan and Roma. This was another high-scoring affair, finishing 3-3. Milan got a brace from Ibrahimovic, and the third was scored by Alexis Salamakers. Roma got goals from Edin Dzeko, Jordan Vertu, and Marash Kumbula. There's quite a bit to talk about in this one. First, you had the oldest player on Milan, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, score less than two minutes into the match. What more can you say? He does it week in, week out. Ibra added a second from the penalty spot, which I'll get to in a moment. But with the brace, Ibrahimovic has moved to the top of the race for Capocannoniere. That's all the more impressive when you consider that Ibra missed two of Milan's five matches because of COVID. Roma's senior striker was up to the task as well. Only two players on Roma are older than Edin Dzeko. That's keepers Antonio Mirante and Simone Farelli. Dzeko scored on a header from a corner kick, and while the header was nice enough, all the attention was on Milan keeper Cyprian Tatrosanu. Tatrosanu only started this match because on Monday Milan announced on their official website that both Gijo Donnarumma and Jens Peter Haug had tested positive for COVID, so they were both in isolation. Back to the goal, Tatsuru Sanu came off his line to attempt to collect the corner, but did not come close at all, leaving a gaping goal for Jekyll to head into. The second half started out much like the first, with Milan scoring less than two minutes in. Alexis Salamakers finished off the Rafael Leal cross. I thought this was one of Leal's better matches for Milan. Even though he was lined up on the left side, Pioli seemed to give him the freedom to roam around a little bit. Leao assisted on Milan's first two goals. On the first, he very skillfully lifted the ball over the Roma back line and put it in a place where Ibra just needed to get a touch on the ball to beat Merante, who probably should have done better on the play. On the second, he created space with a step over on the left side before spotting Salamakers inside the box. Rick Karsdorp really struggled to keep up with the pace of Leao on that side of the field as he got beat on both goals. Then there was a stretch of about 10 to 15 minutes where this match became more about referee Piero Giacomelli. It started with a penalty awarded to Roma with a supposed foul by Benacer on Pedro. The replay clearly showed that Pedro fouled Benacer, stepping on his foot, not the other way around. Nonetheless, Jordan Bertu stepped up and converted the penalty. Leao was decidedly unhappy with the call and he was shown a yellow card for dissent. Shortly thereafter, Ibrahimovic was shown a yellow card for a supposed foul on Gianluca Mancini. Again, the replay showed that there was absolutely nothing there. Finally, Giacomelli made up for the poor penalty awarded to Roma by awarding a penalty to Milan for a supposed foul by Mancini on Benacer. Once again, there really wasn't anything there. Ibra stepped up and converted that penalty. 
I've made this point before, but with VAR, there is absolutely no reason to have makeup calls. We should simply get the original calls right. This is simply unacceptable to me. I know in the end it evened out, but sometimes the opportunity to make up for it just doesn't present itself. Like I said, referees need to be held more accountable, and one way to do that is to have them mic'd up, and reports surfaced today that Giacomelli could be suspended for a month because of his performance in this match. Things did return to normal after that, and Marash Kumbula scored his second in as many matches to make the score 3-3, which is how this match ended. Despite the penalties, I thought this was probably a fair result. Mirante did make a couple of big saves in the match, one on a rocket of a free kick by Chalanoglu, who returns from an injury to play in this match, and the second was off a corner kick where Frank Kessie flicked his header on target. So with the draw, Napoli have now pulled within two points of Milan at the top of the table. So that will do for part two. In part three, we'll preview Napoli's Europa League match against Real Sociedad. final part, we'll preview Napoli's upcoming match against Real Sociedad on Thursday. Sociedad are currently sitting at the top of the La Liga table with 4 wins, 2 draws and 1 loss. Now Real Madrid and Granada are both 1 point back and have a game in hand and Atletico Madrid and Elche both have 2 games in hand so they could theoretically pass Sociedad as well. Sociedad opened the campaign with back-to-back draws including a 0-0 draw to Real Madrid. Since then they've won 4 of 5 matches and in all of those wins, they have scored at least three goals. Most of that production has come from their wingers. Mikel Oyarzabal and Porto have each scored four goals. Striker Alexander Isak has only one goal so far, which is an indication of how much firepower this Sociedad team has up top. That makes Sociedad the highest scoring squad in all of La Liga, but they play on the defensive end as well. Atletico Madrid are the only team in La Liga that have conceded fewer goals than Sociedad. Their most recent win was a 4-1 drubbing of newly promoted Huesca. I get most of my Spanish news from the Spanish football podcast with Phil Kitromelidis and Sid Lowe, and they describe this as the first game that they've seen David Silva pulling the strings. Not only that, they said this was the first time they've seen the Real Sociedad team that they would recognize from the first part of last season. Sociedad were almost like the Spanish Lazio last season. They weren't quite competing for the title, but from about the fifth week up until the lockdown, Sociedad were jumping in and out of a Champions League spot. However, their restart did not go well, just like Lazio. After one draw and four losses in the first five matches, Sociedad dropped all the way down to seventh. A win and two draws in the final three matches of the season was just barely enough to stay in seventh and qualify for the second qualifying round of the Europa League. 
Sociedad had also reached the final of the Copa del Rey. That final has yet to be played, with the other finalists being Athletic Club. It's the first time the final of the Copa del Rey is a Bosque Derby, so the clubs have agreed to postpone it until they can play in front of the fans. Phil Ensid added that prior to this match, Sociedad were picking up wins, but they weren't looking at them thinking they are really, really good. In this match, the movement was excellent, and in addition to David Silva, they said Oyarzabal was excellent and Porto played really, really well. And Alexander Isak scored a goal by controlling a ball coming in over his shoulder and took one touch to set up his shot. Finally, Sociedad opened the group stage with a 1-0 win over Croatian club HNK Rijeka. As you would expect, Sociedad dominated the match. They had plenty of possession, but it was mostly in front of the defense. They didn't get behind them all that often. You could see why Oyarzabal and Porto score so much. They love to make those Jose Callejon-style runs to the back post, so that's something our fullbacks are going to have to keep an eye out for. But both sides were wasteful in front of their opponent's goal in this match. Sociedad were a bit unlucky as well. In the 26th minute, Robin Lenormad's header hit the bar. And in the 83rd minute, Oyarzabal hit the upright after a lovely through ball from Merino. Sociedad did not get their goal until the third minute of added time. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Imanol Alguacil typically attacks in a 4-3-3 and defends in a 4-1-4-1, much like Napoli did last season. Eretz El Sutondo has started every match, and Le Normand has started all but the first match of the season at center back, so we should see both of them again in this one. Likewise, Andoni Goriathabal has started every match at right back, while Ihan Munoz and Nacho Monreal have shared responsibility at left back. I'll go with Monreal to get the start in this one. In the midfield, we should see Igor Zubaldia playing as the holding midfielder in behind David Silva and Mikel Merino. I mentioned that Sociedad's top scorers are their wingers. Mikel Oyarzabal owns the left wing and Porto owns the right. And finally, Alexander Isak should start at striker, though Willian Jose is a more than capable option if Alguacil decides to give Isak a rest. For Napoli, while I think it's quite possible that Gattuso comes back again with his strongest 11, I'm going to assume that he decides to rest some of his key players with a big match coming up against Asuolo. In part 1, we talked about which players have clocked a lot of minutes in the last two weeks, so once again, I'm going to assume that Gattuso rests some of these players. At the back, I think Koulibaly will get the match off. He wore the captain's armband in Insignia's absence, but Insignia is back now. I think Nikola Maximovic will start alongside Kostas Manolas. At left back, I think we'll see Elsie Kusai on the left. I know I said that Mario Rui plays well with Insignia, but I also said that I think Kusai is a better defender, so I think Gattuso will call on him to mark Porto. That means Giovanni Di Lorenzo will start his fourth straight match at right back. In the midfield, I think we'll see Tiamui Bakayoko get another start. Fortunately, his injury turned out to be nothing more than a superficial cut on his knee, so he is immediately available for Gattuso. That said, it would be great to see Stanislav Lobotka get a start here. Fabian is one of the few players on the team that I think will get a fourth start in 13 days. Piotr Zielinski and Elif Elmes both return to training on Monday and will be in the squad for this match, but I don't think they'll be in the starting 11. I'm expecting Zielinski to replace Fabian around the 65th minute of this match and then to start the following match against Sassuolo. I do also expect Dries Mertens to get his fourth consecutive start as well, largely because he only played 58 minutes in the match against Benevento. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing and I think Matteo Politano will start on the right wing. He's been in fine form lately and is certainly worthy of the start. Finally, I think Andrea Petania will start as the striker both to give Victor Osiman a rest and to reward Petania for the very important goal he scored against Benevento. For my prediction, I'll go with a 2-1 Napoli win. 
For Napoli, I'll give the goals to Andrea Pitania and Lorenzo Insigne. And for Sociedad, I'll give the goal to Alexander Isak. I think this is a very intriguing match between clubs in similar situations. They are both at or near the top of their respective tables. Like every team playing in European competitions, the schedule is very busy. In the case of these two clubs, they will not want to jeopardize their chances of qualifying for next year's Champions League. However, there are a few key differences as well. Napoli happened to be in this position because we had a dreadful first start to last season. We've spent the better part of the last decade playing in the Champions League, even if we haven't progressed beyond the group stage all that often. I think that's what makes the David Silva signing so important for Sociedad. He brings a wealth of experience in European competition, even if he has not won a European Cup. I think Napoli have a much deeper squad. I don't know too much about Sociedad's squad, but they've started almost exactly the same starting 11 in all 7 of their matches. And finally, Sociedad won their first match and Napoli lost theirs. Europa League is not our top priority, but I do think we still want to do well in this competition, and that makes this match more critical for us to win than for Sociedad. So that's our preview of Napoli versus Real Sociedad. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Forza Napoli Pod. We'll talk to you again after the match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.